Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my home office. We call it the Castle, here in the northeast corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, got a lot to talk about today. We got, looks like, 20 pages of criminal justice fuckery to go over. But first, as always, podcast notes. We, uh, we missed the February 8th episode because I made the conscientious decision, but ultimately a mistake, of watching the Super Bowl instead of recording. Uh, what, a, what an awful decision that was, right? That was just a, a boring game. And then the uh, next several weeks, I knew I was going to be absent because lawyering is more or less coming back to North Carolina. I had uh, several days of various WebEx and Zoom hearings I was part of three different depositions via Zoom. If any of you have ever had one, uh, depositions are not riveting anyway, but depositions via Zoom are somehow worse. And then was part of a mediation on uh, WebEx or Zoom, one of the two, I, I don't remember, where we started at 10 and then went until 9.30 that night, didn't finish, started a week later at 10, and things finally wrapped up around 2.30 in the morning the following day, which I, you know, I don't know, I'm laughing, but it was, it was a, God, it was just a terrible experience. I have never hated being a trial lawyer. I love what I do. I love being in courthouses. I love trying cases. Uh, but having to do stuff remotely sucks. There is no... Uh, there is no redeeming value for it. I mean, the, the upside, I guess, is that I know how to persuasively advocate over a, a medium that is similar to podcasting because I use the same setup. I mean, I've got my laptop here. I've got my microphone on the boom mic and everything else, uh, but it's awful. I, I was grateful I had one in-person court appearance where we got a case dismissed in a county where I don't often practice. And the act of getting out of the house and going into a courthouse was just liberating. It was just so liberating. Um, so we are, we are aspiring to be back. I make no guarantees on next week's episode because I have two physical in-person court appearances tomorrow. Thank goodness. A WebEx hearing on Thursday, some other stuff coming up next week. We're going into March. So like all of my, my COVID stuff that got continued and pushed to November, then got pushed to December, then got pushed to February, March. Uh, we're coming into that time frame. So just kind of be aware I am planning to be here, uh, but it's it's a mess. So if you still want to join us for non-criminal justice fuckery, we do have three times a week a Twitch game night, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday from 9 until 11 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, we do happen to play Jackbox party games, which, you know, whether that's your cup of tea kind of depends. I really do it more because I enjoy chatting with y'all and having fun. So if you're into that sort of thing, feel free to join us. Uh, that web, I guess I should give y'all that website. I keep talking about it. It's uh, twitch.tv slash Legal Eagle T. So Legal Eagle, as you would expect, my alma mater, North Carolina Central University Eagles, went to law school, hence the Legal Eagle piece. And T, as in T. Greg Doucette, or T. Dot, as my friends called me. 
so if you want to join us, you're welcome to do that. For the uh, podcast stuff, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter. You can do that at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you ever want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on the website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, the people who help support this uh, this podcast financially, pay for our hosting for the, the Blueberry folks and everything else, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That's patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. All right, so today's March 1st. Our last episode was February 1st. We've had four weeks pass. And as always, as we've been starting since the pandemic hit, we do a little COVID update. Uh, we are at 526,097 Americans dead of COVID. So that averaged out to 18,454 people dying per week since the last time you heard this podcast. Now, the good news is that we're only, only I'm putting only in air quotes, only losing about 2,000 Americans a day. And that rate is holding flat. That is down from February when we were losing 3,000 a day. So that's a that's a sizable drop, you know, losing uh, 1,000 people less. The bad news is that if you look at the, uh, the new cases and the deaths, our new caseloads put us at the height of the second wave in July. And our daily deaths are still just as big as that very first wave in April when people in New York and New Jersey were dropping like flies. So it was a... Um, you know, we're still in a bad spot. And in, to the government's credit, God bless Joe Biden. He's doing basic governing stuff. Uh, ended up there was an announcement that Merck was going to help Johnson & Johnson with manufacturing the vaccine. People seem to think that we will have enough doses for everybody by spring, which would mean that the focus now shifts to convincing Muppets to get vaccinated. Because right now, if you look at the uh, Axios had a poll out, the people least inclined to get vaccinated. You know, if you were listening to the talking heads, you would think it's black Americans because frankly, our government has a longstanding history of experimenting on black folks. So vaccine hesitancy in the black community makes sense. But no, that is not it. The people least inclined to get the virus, uh, the vaccine, most skeptical of it are white Republicans and their interest in it is still holding steady. So every other demographic group Wherever you see vaccine hesitancy, it goes down over time. They're more inclined to get the vaccine as they see other people getting it and seeing that it works. White Republicans, they're like, fuck that. I want my COVID. So it's going to be a mess. If we continue with these case counts and we these death counts, you know, we're, we're going to hit 600,000 people in, in the span of a short period of time, barring some miracle in terms of getting folks vaccinated. And I, I included this in the draft. I was debating whether or not to uh, to read it because it's a gut punch. So the New York Times, I, I am subscribed to them. I, I, I stipulate. I subscribe to the Times, Washington Post, and my local newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observer. They have this series, and it's called Tiny Love Stories, where it's little vignettes, very brief, about you know people trying to to make do in life. And there was one that was shared on Twitter that I'm going to read to you. It says, quote, After Hazel and I got married at the ages of 20 and 21, I questioned our judgment in choosing to marry so young. When we had a baby soon after, I wondered how I could possibly support a family. In our mid-40s, I thought we were too young to become grandparents, even though our grandchildren are lovely. 
Then, when Hazel passed away at 50 from the coronavirus, I finally realized why we got married so young. We were not meant to grow old together, and I am grateful for our time. That, uh, that sucks, man. That, that is, I read that, and yeah, I teared up a little bit, and it just reminds you, we have lost a tremendous amount of humanity, just, just raw quantum people humanity in this country because of this particular virus. It is, it is astonishing, and it's going to take some time for us to, to reconcile with that because we really haven't. We've just been kind of to going on about it. So that is the, the COVID update in the criminal justice fuckery department. We've got a couple court opinions that I'm going to save for next week's podcast because I want to have, like I said, we got like 20 pages of stories. I want to, I want to marinate on at least one of them because the fifth circuit, and I'll give you a preview. I'm not going to give you the opinion, but I'll give you a preview. A guy was suicidal, doused in gasoline. Police were called, and they knew he was doused in gasoline, knew that he was suicidal, and said, challenge accepted, and tased him, lighting him on fire, and watched him burn to death. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Texas, where I also happen to be licensed, basically said, this is all well and good. You can have qualified immunity. You cannot be sued. Uh, So I'm going to give you all that episode, that, not God, that episode, that opinion in the next episode. For now, though, we're going to go through our criminal justice fuckery. We usually start with the federal stuff. In this case, it's federal stuff in New York. So I didn't want to put it in the uh, the New York State news because this is these are the feds. But we've got one of a couple stories of prosecutors behaving badly. So from that story, it says, quote, federal prosecutors in New York acknowledged telling a subquote flat lie to a criminal defendant's legal team while trying to downplay their mishandling of evidence in the botched trial of a businessman accused of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. Now, I'm going to pause. One of the things we are taught in law school is to never use the word lie in oral arguments, in arguing to a jury or anything else. I, I don't know why. The, the way it was explained to me was that it's considered objectionable because it's not nice or something to that effect. When you are admitting to telling a lie... You have fucked up royally. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. Uh, so the story continues. Quote, the embarrassing revelations about what many consider the United States' top criminal investigating office were contained in dozens of private text messages, transcripts, and correspondence unsealed Monday over the objection of prosecutors at the request of the Associated Press. The release of the records followed a ruling last week in which United States District Judge Allison Nathan urged the Justice Department to open an internal probe into misconduct by prosecutors in the Terrorism and International Narcotics Unit in the U.S. Attorney's Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. While Judge Nathan found no evidence that prosecutors intentionally withheld evidence from lawyers representing an Iranian banker, Ali Sader Hashemi Najad, uh, she said they made a, quote, deliberate attempt to obscure the truth and attempted to, subquote, bury a key document that might have helped the defense. The mistakes were serious enough that even after winning a conviction, prosecutors dropped all charges against Sader. So the story goes on from there. We'll give you a link. But the gist of it is that there's a line prosecutor who wanted to use something at trial, realized she hadn't disclosed it in discovery, and said, hey, I I should go ahead and turn this over ASAP. Uh, A colleague told her no, wait until tomorrow and bury it amid a bunch of documents. 
Then there are texts in the supervisors going back and forth about not disclosing it. And one of the guys just, just fuck it, said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pack up my bags and resign before this stuff hits court. And now he's working at some massive law firm in New York. But we'll give you a link to that story. It's, discovery abuse isn't funny, but my God, in this case, it's rare that you see such uh, extensive documentation of violating people's Brady rights. Uh, in Arizona, in Phoenix, we have the first rule of Fisk. Again, the first rule is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And from that story, it says, quote, After helping to arrest 18 Black Lives Matter protesters, three Phoenix police officers sat in a squad car, lamenting that they hadn't trampled the group and doused them in pepper spray. So, quote, Why didn't we just stomp on them when they were leaving? An officer asks in body camera video published by ABC 15. Subquote, gas them, another one says, suggesting they should, subquote, just gas them and let them run like crazy. Now, I'm going to pause. I Sorry, I keep doing these asides. But one of the things I tend to do when I get these stories is that I actually go listen to the video. And as you've probably heard me say many times, often the video is actually worse than the news story. They, they go out of their way to be so gentle to police because police are their sources for so many stories. Uh, so the cops are calling them dickheads and asshole kids wondering why they didn't stomp him right away. The gas him guy had some more stuff to say to that. He goes, gas him. I don't give a shit. If we just gas him and let them run like crazy, gas the shit out of them. Who gives a shit? Uh, another one's complaining, calling a citizen a fucking liberal piece of shit. And then they whine about having to wear body cams. So like you're, you're complaining. You know this body cam is here and it's on and you're behaving like this anyway. Uh, that's, a, that's a big fucking cultural problem. All right, so we'll give you a link. You can watch the video. Story continues, quote, Police Chief Jerry Williams vowed swift and decisive disciplinary action in response to the officer's alleged behavior. I love this, the alleged behavior. It's on a fucking body cam, uh, which he characterized as disrespectful and threatening to the department's relationship with community members. Williams did not offer details of the impending discipline, and the names of the officers in the video have not been made public. Hours after the video was released, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office announced it had moved to dismiss the charges against the 15 adult protesters arrested on October 17th. Public pressure to drop the prosecutions had been mounting, especially after ABC 15 reported that some of the officers who have responded to a recent demonstration shared a, subquote, challenge coin allegedly tied to a neo-Nazi symbol in 2017 to celebrate shooting another protester in the groin. Now, we're going to pause there because as that segment of that story hinted at uh, it turns out there's actually a new story of criminal justice fuckery related to an old story of criminal justice fuckery that happened at the same time so also in phoenix also this story this story dropped the day before the other story dropped uh, from that story, it says, quote, After shooting a protester in the groin, a special team of Phoenix police officers celebrated the shot with commemorative coins to sell and share. The challenge coins clearly depict the man being shot on the front and have the date of the protest on the back, according to images and photos obtained by ABC 15. The coins also have the following two phrases, Good night, left nut, and make America great again, one nut at a time. 
Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams was made aware of the coins, but no officers were disciplined, records show. Subquote, they relish in the use of violence against these protesters, said Jared Keenan, an attorney with ACLU Arizona. It sends a clear message that this is the appropriate way to act. It's okay not only to use extreme violence against protesters, but to glorify it and relish in it. Now, keep in mind, this was a 2017 protest. So all the stuff y'all saw this past summer in 2020 that was part of the police brutality mega thread, you know, this is the new shit. This story here is the old shit. This has been going on for years. This is a recurring problem. This is not new. We started this podcast in 2017, and the, the hiatuses that I've had have been because of me. It has not been because of a lack of story stuff. Uh, so we'll give you a link to this. The, the story goes on from there, but they talk about the fact that one particular guy who engaged in the shooting of the unarmed person, uh, his job title is a, a grenadier or great grenadier, whatever. I think it's grenadier. I don't know how to, how to pronounce it because it's just such a stupid fucking title for an officer. Like in, in military parlance, the grenadier is the guy that throws the grenades. Why the fuck is that a job title for a cop? I, I have no idea. So we'll give you a link to both of those stories. They dropped about the same time. Over in California, we've got, uh, well, it's only two stories. One of them is long. I'm going to forewarn you ahead of time. Uh, but in Los Angeles, there has been typical you know, banter on social media making fun of dead black people, as one does. From that story, it says, quote, The Los Angeles Police Department has opened an internal investigation after an inappropriate image of George Floyd, the man killed in police custody in Minneapolis last year, was reported to have been circulated in the department. The image was styled in an unspecified Valentine-like format with the words, You take my breath away, according to an internal memo posted on Twitter and what Chief Michael Moore told the Los Angeles Times on Saturday. So, quote, the department is aware of the inappropriate post and has and a complaint has been initiated, and due to personnel matters, we are unable to comment further, said Officer Rosario Cervantes, a spokeswoman for the Los Angeles Police Department. Another spokesman, let me, let me pause. How many spokespeople do you need for a fucking police department? I realize Los Angeles is like one of the biggest cities in the country, but this is ridiculous. Uh, another spokesman, Stacy Spill, confirmed that, quote, an administrative personnel investigation has been initiated, but that she could not comment on its specific details. George Floyd, a black man, died in May after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground under the knee of Derek Chauvin, who was then a police officer in Minneapolis for more than nine minutes. In the footage, Mr. Floyd can be heard uttering the words, I can't breathe, more than 20 times. Uh, so this is the, this is the type of conduct that intentionally flames the passions of the anti-police crowd. I don't know why people would think this is funny. Even if you're a cop, guy fucking died. What what sort of humor do you find in a man's death? You know whether you think that death was justified or not. In this case, you know if you think it's justified, then fuck you. But you know even if it were. Even if it were what the law would consider a good shot or whatever else, why the fuck are you, you laughing about it? What purpose does that serve? So that's in Los Angeles. In Orange County, we have uh, both the first and third rules of Fisk. Again, first rule, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. In this case, there was, you know, there was a lot of video, and it's ridiculous. Third rule is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions, because in this case... There's a guy that they killed. He was unarmed. They claimed that he was uh, going to grab one of their guns. And in this instance, they, they came up with a pretext to stop him and were arguing between themselves as to whether or not to do it. 
So from that story, it says, quote, Before fatally shooting a black man in San Clemente last year, two Orange County sheriff's deputies argued over whether the man had illegally crossed the street and whether it was necessary to even stop him. A newly released recording reveals... The Orange County Sheriff's Department on Wednesday released dash cam video and security camera footage from a motel that shows the fatal encounter with Kurt Reinhold, who was shot to death September 23rd. A previously released bystander cell phone video shows the two deputies confronting Reinhold in the middle of El Camino Real. The deputies, part of a detail that specializes in homelessness issues, are seen trying to stop Reinhold from walking away before wrestling him to the ground. A voice is heard yelling, he's got my gun, followed by two shots several seconds apart. The dash cam video provides new insight into what prompted the deadly confrontation with the 42-year-old father of two, whose family said he was having a mental health crisis. The two deputies, identified as Eduardo Duran and Jonathan Israel, spotted Reinhold near El Camino Road in Avenida San Gabriel as they sat in their cruiser. Subquote, okie doke, he's seen you, he's seen you, copper, one of the deputies can be heard saying as he spots Reinhold seemingly eyeing the police cruiser. Watch this, he's going to jaywalk, the second deputy says, adding, there you go. The first officer replies but seems to debate whether Reinhold's movement was illegal. I don't know, dude. The second deputy snaps back, don't make case law. Then the other deputy replies, it's not case law. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause here. You're not going to find a more crystal clear example of the fact that police know the shit they're doing is wrong. Every time we have a situation where something comes up and there's a dispute over whether or not qualified immunity is appropriate and whether or not they just kind of made a decision in the heat of the moment and everything else, this is a perfect example of the fact they know what they're doing is wrong. You have one officer who's going out of his way to say, we're going to look for a pretext and arrest this guy for jaywalking. His partner is like, I don't know. And your response is, don't make case law. That's a sign you know the fucking case law. And you're planning to exploit that to go harass a guy. Story continues, quote, the two then pull the patrol car alongside Reinhold, who is standing on the sidewalk. What's going on? How are you doing? One of the deputies asks as he disappears from the dash cam view. Are you going to stop? Or are we going to make you stop? Because I am telling you to stop. Reinhold replies, for what? To which the deputy responds, for jaywalking. What are you talking about? I'm walking, Reinhold says. One of the deputies is then heard informing Reinhold he is resisting arrest. Reinhold says, that's ridiculous. When the dash cam ceases to capture audio from the body-worn microphones of the deputies, the bystander cell phone video picks up the encounter and shows the two deputies confronting Reinhold as he repeatedly tells them, stop touching me. Go sit down, one deputy tells him. The agitated man ignores the command and tries to walk away. Video shows the law enforcement officers wrestling Reinhold to the ground and him wriggling as they try to restrain his arms. Now, I'm going to note here, there was no basis for an initial arrest, so you can't really be resisting arrest if there's no basis to arrest you in the first place. You then hear a voice shout, he's got my gun, he's got my gun, followed by two gunshots. Oh my God, the person recording the altercation can be heard saying in the video. Now, here's where shit gets funny to the extent any of this can be humorous. In the wake of the shooting, this is a quote, by the way, in the wake of the shooting, Orange County Sheriff Don Barnes released a still image from a security camera at a nearby hotel that he said showed Reinhold trying to unholster one of the deputy's guns before the shots were fired. On Wednesday, the Sheriff's Department released the entire security camera video from the hotel. The video does not reveal whether he was trying to unholster the weapon. So you have this scuffle between people. You have a guy in a headlock. You have a bystander video recording. 
You have the police then say, hey, wait a minute, this still shows he's trying to grab the gun. You then have the actual video, which doesn't show that at all. Which means, the translation there, is that when they released that still photo, the sheriff's department was fucking lying. They were trying to change the narrative, to set the narrative, to make sure that what you heard back when this murder first happened is what you remembered. And don't pay any attention to the new shit that just came out this Wednesday. Why would it take that long? You know, you have this still footage from the shooting when it first happened. Why are we just now getting the full video on Wednesday? The, the guy was killed September 23rd. It's coronavirus time. Not like we got any other shit going on. They had the video that early to release the still photo at their press conference after the murder. Why is it that you got October, November, December, January, February, end of February? You're just now releasing the full video that contradicts what you said at your press conference. This is standard operating procedures. This type of bullshit that's fucking ridiculous. Uh, also, record everything. Because, but for the fact this bystander had their own footage, you never would have known what happened because all the action took place outside of the dash cam view and there was no audio from that distance, from that angle. And there's no audio in the security footage from the hotel. Only reason we know what's going on is because that bystander stopped and recorded it. Uh, down in Florida, in Tallahassee, this is <laughs> uh, this shit. This is not a well. I guess it sort of is. I was gonna say this is not police behaving badly, but it, it really is police behaving badly when you think about it. Uh, from Tallahassee, it says, "Quote: Shortly after sunrise on January 15th, FBI agents descended with guns drawn and a squat red brick apartment complex broke open the door of one of the units and threw in a stun grenade, prompting the frightened property manager to call 911." Inside the apartment, furnished with little besides books and a sign declaring the revolution is not a party, the agents found their target, a 33-year-old Army veteran and self-described hardcore leftist who had posted a flyer on social media threatening to attack armed racist mobs with every caliber available. And that, that portion with every caliber available is in all quotes. The man, Daniel Baker, hardly fit the profile of those who had been expected to cause trouble in the run-up to President Biden's inauguration. After a mob of Donald Trump supporters invaded the U.S. Capitol on January 6 in hope of preventing Biden from taking office, the FBI had warned that far-right extremists were plotting armed marches in Tallahassee and other state capitals, as well as in D.C. But Baker represents the flip side of that threat. As a far-right extremist movement wages an assault on American government and institutions, experts say an unpredictable battle is brewing, fueling potentially legitimate threats of violence from the opposite fringe of the political spectrum. A yoga devotee, an advocate for the homeless who helped out at an art center, Baker decried both Biden and Trump. Baker, a socialist idealist who volunteered to fight against Islamic State forces in Syria, also had traveled to Seattle last summer to support protesters for racial justice who briefly claimed an abandoned police precinct and declared the area around it an autonomous zone. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol deepened Baker's belief that the United States was on the brink of civil war. According to court records, social media posts, and interviews with Baker's friends, he felt certain that Tallahassee, where a man fueled by misogyny killed two women at a yoga studio in 2018, and a pickup driver accelerated through a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters last summer, would see violence at the hands of far-right agitators. And he was convinced they had to be met with armed resistance. So... We'll give you more. There's a lot more to this particular story, but I'm going to go down because one of the things that they have arrested this guy for is that they, the FBI claims he is, quote, on a path toward radicalization. And so they've got his Facebook post included as part of the indictment. Here are the examples. Quote, 
He's willing to do anything to anyone so I don't end up homeless and hungry again. That's one. Uh, He noted an update about, quote, voting from the rooftops. That's number two. Uh, Another one was hoping, quote, the right tries a coup on November 3rd because I'm so fucking down to slay enemies again. That's, That's number three. And in December, he had a post, quote, Trump still plans on a violent militant coup. If you don't have guns, you won't survive. Now, all of that is protected speech. I mean, that's really, I was trying to figure out a way to, to convey that point a little bit more uh, forcefully. But nothing in here is a threat. Nothing in here meets the standard for a true threat. Nothing in here meets the standard for incitement. Uh, all of this is protected speech. This guy is arrested because he posted protected speech online, and he's a leftist. So when when the MAGA clan decides they're going to go try and stage a coup, the FBI decides the best thing they can do is go arrest some liberals. I mean, that's really what that comes down to. Baker was held without bond anyway because the judge was terrified of these statements on social media that, again, are all protected speech. Nothing in here is even remotely close to a threat. It's just so far away from the line to ever get near crossing the line. It's absurd. The fact is the police, including the FBI, are not serious about right-wing violence because a lot of them are part of right-wing violence. They just don't care. Uh, So that's in Florida. In Louisiana, we've got two cases that are opposite sides of the criminal justice fuckery coin. You'll recall that we call Louisiana the Florida City and clusterfuck of criminal justice. Well, the first is in Baton Rouge, where we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, A Baton Rouge, Louisiana police officer is under investigation after cell phone video surfaced on social media Sunday, showing a black 13-year-old boy being pinned to the ground with a brutal chokehold to his neck. The Baton Rouge Police Department, already accused of several racially motivated encounters, including one that turned deadly, has not revealed the identity of the officer, who remains on the beat, according to the police. Footage of the teen's violent takedown is about 23 seconds long and shows another Baton Rouge officer arrive to help put the boy in handcuffs after the officer released his arm from the kid's neck. The arrest appears to have taken place on a neighborhood street. The investigation is looking at whether the officer followed proper procedure during the arrest, said Baton Rouge Police Chief Murphy Paul, adding that a determination on discipline will be made soon. So, quote, if that officer did not have a badge or a uniform on and was an adult on the ground with a child in that manner, he'd be arrested, said Ron Haley, a civil rights attorney hired to represent the boy. So, quote, nowhere should an unarmed 13-year-old who is not a danger to himself or others be treated like a grown-up. And again, as is so often the case with these videos, we'll give you a link to the video. The video is worse than the description of it. So that is in Baton Rouge. But in New Orleans, we have good news. So let it not be said that I don't report good news. From that story, it says, quote, leapfrogging ahead of a United States Supreme Court decision, Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams waived objections Friday to new trials for 22 Louisiana state prisoners who were convicted by split juries between 1974 and 2014. He said the action was aimed at wiping away the stains of the Jim Crow legal era in a state that began allowing non-unanimous convictions after an 1898 state constitutional convention focused on maintaining white supremacy. The Supreme Court ruled some split verdicts were unconstitutional last year. Now I'm going to note, in that particular decision, that was Ramos versus Louisiana, they held that they were unconstitutional going forward were unconstitutional for cases where the appeals were pending, but did not decide if they would be unconstitutional retroactively. 
which is one of the things the Supreme Court does when they realize that shit's wrong, but they don't want to tinker with things too much. They'll say, okay, yeah, this is fucked up and wrong, but if you're already convicted, fuck you. It's absurd that they do this, but so be it. Story continues, quote, One after the next, life prisoners donned headphones and faced a camera at a virtual court hearing to hear the news from a DA's office that is suddenly receptive to their plight to grant them new trials or, in many cases, their freedom. The Supreme Court in April ruled against split jury verdicts in cases still on appeal, finding that the U.S. Constitution required a unanimous verdict. I probably shouldn't have had that aside earlier. I forgot that it was in the story. Uh, only Louisiana and Oregon employed the unusual practice of split jury verdicts. Both states required that only 10 of 12 jurors agree for a valid verdict. The reason why they did that is because after the Civil War, suddenly there was a requirement that you have blacks on juries. So by only requiring 10 people to convict, you could have up to two black people on a jury, assume the black people vote to acquit and still convict whoever happens to be prosecuted. Uh, the high court's decision did not apply to the defendants appearing via video link from state prisons on Friday uh, because they had already exhausted the right to appeal their convictions. An estimated 1,600 state prisoners in Louisiana were convicted by split juries and have convictions that are considered final, including roughly 340 from New Orleans. The Supreme Court heard arguments in December about whether to apply its split jury decision retroactively. Williams pledged on the campaign trail to instead let defendants with final convictions receive those new trials, and he appears to be the first DA in Louisiana to do so on a large scale. Good for him. It's rare that we have good news in Louisiana. Over in Nevada, in Las Vegas, this is another one where the story and the video that comes out months later turns out to be a total fucking contradiction. Uh, first rule of Fisk again, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, Attorneys for the parents of Jorge Gomez showed video at a Friday news conference that they contend contradicts Las Vegas police accounts of Gomez's death on June 1st during Black Lives Matter protests. I'm going to pause on the front end. There's no fucking contention. I, I sent out a tweet. I'm going to give you a link to the tweet so you can see it yourself. I tweeted a YouTube link of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department press conference after Gomez was murdered. And the police chief says that Gomez was turned, facing police, had an AR-15 in his hands, pointing at the officers. Like, that's there. That's on YouTube. You can go see that shit yourself. Turns out, from two different video angles that have been released at this press conference, that that was total bullshit. Story continues, quote, speakers at Friday's event called for the arrest of the officers involved in the shooting and called on Clark County District Attorney Steve Wolfson to act. Metro officers Ryan Fryman, Dan Emerton, Vernon Ferguson, and Andrew Locker were involved in the shooting. They are named in a federal civil rights lawsuit filed by lawyers for Gomez's parents. Attorney Rodolfo Gonzalez tracked Gomez's movements as newly released video played on a monitor, making the point that Gomez was not holding a weapon when he was shot. Some accounts from officers said Gomez had raised a rifle toward them before they shot him 19 times near the Lloyd George U.S. Courthouse on Las Vegas Boulevard. Again, not some accounts, in quotes. It is the actual Las Vegas Metro Police Department account at a press conference to everybody. He was standing, facing them, pointing an AR-15. What the video shows is that he had nothing at all in his hands, had no visible weapons of any kind, was running away, and was shot 19 times in the back. They gunned him down like a fucking dog. You know, you remember Old Yeller? That old movie made me cry because the, the dog it gets rabies and goes mad and has to be put down. That's basically what they did to this guy. You have two different security camera videos showing him running away 
and they just fucking shot him because they could, and then they lied about it. They lied about it because they knew he was killed in June. By the time you get to March, no one's going to be paying any fucking attention. They're not going to care anymore because we've moved on to the next scandal. So I'll give you a Twitter link in the uh, in the show notes that includes both a link to this story and in the Twitter link, there's a link to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department uh, press conference. You make a decision yourself. Take a look at it on your own. Don't listen to me. Go Go check it out for yourself. Uh, in New York, in Buffalo, this was a couple weeks back, but this was an update on entry number 282 and the police brutality mega thread where cops pushed a 75-year-old white guy to the ground, cracked his skull, stood there as he's bleeding out of his ear, covered by like four different media angles. Uh, this is the one where they were indicted and then the department, you know, a bunch of people resigned from the unit as a show of solidarity, a bunch of this other happy horse shit. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a grand jury has declined to indict two Buffalo police officers who were facing felony assault charges for shoving a 75-year-old protester who landed hard on the ground and seriously injured his head, prosecutors said on Thursday. I love the, the wording of this here. You know, it was the 75-year-old protester who landed hard and injured his head. The, the protester injured his head, not was injured by police. Uh, the episode outside Buffalo City Hall last June was captured on video and widely shared on social media, fueling outrage during a summer of unrest over police violence. The fury only intensified after the police department initially claimed that the protester, Martin Gugino, tripped and fell, a description at direct odds with the video. In the video taken by the local radio station WBFO, officers Aaron Torgalski and Robert McCabe pushed Mr. Gugino, causing him to stagger backward and land hard on the sidewalk. Blood was seen immediately pooling behind his head. Mr. Gugino, a longtime peace activist, had been attempting a protest, or had been attending, not attempting, had been attending a protest stemming from the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. He was hospitalized and treated for a head injury, loss of consciousness, and bleeding from the right ear. The Erie County District Attorney, John Flynn, charged the officers with assault last June, saying they had crossed the line and violated the law. Under New York law, a person who attacks someone 65 or older and is more than 10 years younger than the victim can be charged with felony assault. Mr. Flynn said on Thursday that the case had been presented to a grand jury in recent weeks after a series of court closings caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Subquote, as with all cases, since that date of arrest, an investigation continued and was pursued, Mr. Flynn said at a news conference. There was a felony charge, and therefore it was a matter that was going to go to the grand jury. Let's be clear here, okay? This really wasn't a complex case. The video that was taken speaks for itself. But the grand jury voted to no-bill the case, which means that they dismissed it, Mr. Flynn said, because grand jury proceedings are held in secret. Mr. Flynn said he could not reveal the witnesses who had spoken to the grand jury, the evidence that was presented, or the questions that might have led to the decision. So, quote, I want to tell you what occurred in the grand jury so this can be explained in more detail, but unfortunately I can't. Anticipating criticism that he had sandbagged the case, Mr. Flynn said, so, quote, you really only have my word that I didn't sandbag anything, that I put all relevant information and evidence into that grand jury. I presented it all to the grand jury and they made a decision. This is funny because you hear the joke, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. That is how pliable grand juries are to prosecutors. But even though they'll indict a ham sandwich, they apparently won't indict a dirty cop on video physically assaulting a senior citizen and fracturing the guy's skull. Fucking ridiculous. Uh, over in New York City, we've actually got at least two stories of this because there's one in uh, Pennsylvania as well. Uh, cops attending the 1-6 insurrection. 
So from that story, it says, quote, a retired New York police officer who was once part of the security detail at City Hall was charged on Tuesday with assaulting a police officer with a metal flagpole during the pro-Trump riot at the Capitol on January 6th. The former officer, Thomas Webster, served on a New York Police Department unit that provided security for the mayor, Gracie Mansion, and City Hall, according to a law enforcement official. Mr. Webster, 54, a former Marine, surrendered to the FBI on Monday and was charged with six counts relating to the attack on an officer from the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., and his participation in the violent attempt to stop Congress from certifying the presidential election results. Now, I'm going to pause. This guy's only 54. Remember, the second word of the story was that he's retired. That's got to be fucking nice. Must be nice to retire at 54. He's going to have two pensions because he's a former Marine, so he's got whatever he's getting from the government for his military service, plus what he's getting from the New York police for his uh, city police service. It's ridiculous. Story continues, quote, A federal prosecutor said there were videos of Mr. Webster attacking the Washington officer, first with a metal flagpole that earlier had flown a Marine Corps flag, and then with his bare hands. According to court documents, after the officer wrestled the flagpole away from Mr. Webster, the former Marine tackled the officer, pinned him to the ground, straddled him, and attempted to rip off his face shield and gas mask, an attack that left the officer unable to breathe. Mr. Webster's lawyer, James Monroe, said his client had traveled to the Capitol to engage in a lawful protest because he regarded the election as unfair. The lawyer said Mr. Webster had acted in self-defense after the officer punched him. <laughs> now, look, I get the defender, the defense lawyers have a hard job on this one. I don't envy them. Kudos for them to making sure the government does its job. You're not going to get anywhere on a self-defense claim if you punched a guy or if you're punched, rather, and you respond with a flagpole. It's just not how self-defense works. Also, back to blue, blue lives matter, until it comes time to attack a cop on the D.C. steps. Uh, in North Carolina, we've got, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do about one of these stories. So we got three stories from North Carolina. The last one, I don't think I'm going to tell you, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. So we got two. First, in uh, Fuquay Verena. From that story, it says, quote, Ever since he could walk, Malcolm Ziegler has loved bikes. For the soft-spoken 14-year-old, there's no better feeling than zipping through the woods on a dirt bike or a four-wheeler, enjoying the scenery around him. About a year ago, he started working on dirt bikes just to open them up and see what's inside, he said. That hobby morphed into tutoring other kids and how to fix their bikes. Through that budding entrepreneurial enterprise, along with mowing lawns and washing cars, he saved up $900 to buy himself a used motorbike. He invested money and time into repairing the bike himself and listed it for sale on Facebook Marketplace for a modest profit. On the afternoon of January 30th, some interested buyers stopped by the Ziegler home to see the bike. A short time later, Malcolm, who was black, was in his front yard with a white friend when two Fuquay Verena police cars pulled up with their lights flashing. Within seconds, Malcolm was placed in handcuffs, searched, and shoved in the back of a police car as officers ignored his repeated pleas to get his father and retrieve proof that he'd paid for the bike. His white friend was also cuffed, but after telling the officer he wasn't involved with the sale, he was quickly released. The officer shut the cruiser door on the frightened teenager and, in body camera footage reviewed by the child's mother, allegedly told the second officer on the scene that Malcolm had been, so quote, running his mouth, which I'm going to note, Running his mouth is not a criminal offense. Surprise. Uh, so, quote, no, Mr. Officer, he was doing his best to clearly communicate to you his desire for his dad and the bill of sale to prove his innocence, his emotional mother said during a Friday press conference with Emancipate North Carolina. So, quote, you were never there to hear my son. You were only there to arrest him. 
if the cop could hear the white teenager's explanation, why could you not hear my son? Good fucking question. If you're there to investigate a uh, theft of a bike and you decide to just let one kid go because he says he wasn't involved and that's it, it's a pretty questionable fucking standard right there. Uh, Indie Week, which is the paper that this article is from, has requested the body camera footage from the Fuquay Verena Police Department. Spokeswoman Susan Weiss said the release of the footage is being reviewed by Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman. In a series of Facebook posts, the police department stated that the incident is under review while also citing several state statutes that allow for minors to be detained with probable cause as justification for the officer's behavior. Uh, Possessing a bike you purchased is not probable cause for arrest. That's just reality. This kid got arrested in broad daylight in front of his neighbors. Okay, imagine the imagine the embarrassment if you're an adult and that happens, but you're now a teenager. You know, that shit's going to follow you. That's the type of stuff that your friends talk about at school. How is that going to impact his reputation in the community going forward? How is it going to impact the reputation of his family? You know, you can't reform this sort of rank incompetence. You can't fix stupid. And yet, that's exactly what was going on here because these gung-ho big-dick commando warriors were more interested in doing an arrest instead of actually investigating the crime that was allegedly reported. Uh, Over in Mooresville, which is actually on the other side of the state, uh, we have a... This is... It's not funny per se, but this is kind of funny. Like, it's, it's rare you have a police department that pisses off a judge so much the judge threatens to start throwing people in contempt. And I don't know this particular judge, but I, I love her already. Uh, from this story, it says, quote, The town of Mooresville and the Mooresville Police Department were held in contempt of court on Tuesday after failing to return $17,000, or sorry, nearly $17,000, after seizing the money during an investigation. Judge Christine Underwood held up the previous court ruling that the $16,761 taken from Jermaine Sanders's car needed to be returned and that the police department, subquote, willfully did not comply with that order, putting it and Mooresville's government in contempt. Give this man his money, Underwood said during the hearing. Underwood said she is giving Mooresville seven business days to return the money. She noted she would not be afraid to jail the board of commissioners, the chief of police, or anyone else who would be considered responsible for returning the money to Sanders. But that would be something used as a last resort if the town did not comply. The town of Mooresville said it is still waiting for the official written order from the judge, and it is exploring all options, including a appeal. The money was found on November 16th, when the Mooresville Police Department discovered it in a vehicle Cannon said Sanders wasn't in and hadn't given consent to search. Police reportedly found less than a half ounce of marijuana in the car, leading to marijuana, uh, leading to misdemeanor charges that will be brought to court at a later date. The cash police found wasn't tied to any criminal charges, which led to the court ordering the money to be returned to Sanders. Now, I'm going to note, this is fairly rare. Typically, with money that's seized as part of an arrest, it ends up being taken as part of civil asset forfeiture, and the burden is on the person whose money it is to prove that it wasn't tied to a crime. Uh, North Carolina is better than a lot of other states when it comes to civil asset forfeiture, but the fact is a lot of times that money never comes back. I mean, it ends up being a bargaining chip in plea negotiations. Uh, Story continues. On November 24th, District Judge Deborah Brown rejected Mooresville's claim that because it had sent the money to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection the day before the hearing, 
that the money wasn't in Mooresville's jurisdiction anymore and that they weren't responsible for returning it. Mooresville Detective Sean Elliott had previously referred Cannon to inquire with the United States Attorney's Office or the Department of Homeland Security about returning the money found in the investigation. However, Brown ruled that the Mooresville Police Department must return the money to Sanders. During Tuesday's hearing, Underwood noted the timing, November 23rd, of when Mooresville had a cashier's check made payable to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. She said Mooresville knew they faced legal action the next day regarding the check. She also noted the fungible nature of the cash, as the city didn't have to return the exact same cash they had seized, but they needed to return the amount of money they owed to Sanders. Now, I'm going to note, you, you can't reform this sort of flagrant corruption. To seize a guy's money, knowing it's going to be required to be returned, knowing you're going to be in deep shit for not returning it, and you decide to then give it to the feds, hoping that that's going to save you from any sort of repercussions, uh, that's just that's not something you can reform. That's a cultural problem that requires a dramatic realignment of incentives before you start getting a change in behavior. Uh, so in Raleigh... I'm going to be honest. I don't know what to do with this. So there's another story of prosecutors behaving badly. Uh, but this guy is actually someone I consider a friend. I've known him for years now. I knew him before he was a lawyer. I knew him when he worked in Durham. I knew him when he worked in Wake. We have worked on cases together. I've given him advice, you know, on his, his career goals. Um, so on the one hand, I can't ignore it because I feel like I owe y'all to cover these things, even when they happen to be friends of mine. But at the same time, I don't think I can cover it fairly because it's, it's out of character for what I know of him. So I'm, uh, rather than go through it at length on the pod, I will give you a link in the show notes. Feel free to go search it out. Uh, he did something very stupid and criminal and resigned. Uh, but I'm just not going to like pile on to him for it. So just want to give you a heads up on that. There is another North Carolina story in the show notes. Um, in Ohio, we have the third rule of Fisk. Again, the third rule is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. In this one, it is yet another person on the force who has an obsession with child pornography. In Franklin County, the story says, quote, the Franklin County Sheriff's Office is seeking to fire a deputy. Now, I'm going to note here, how great are police union contracts? You get federally indicted for kitty porn. You don't get fired. They only seek to fire you as you enjoy your paid vacation for however long that process lasts. Uh, is seeking to fire a deputy who worked in the jail facility as that deputy remains in federal custody on charges accusing him of soliciting and receiving pornographic images of children. Daniel Heights, 38, of the Far East Side, was charged Wednesday in U.S. District Court in Columbus with two child pornography-related counts and turned himself in to federal authorities. Following the charges being filed against Heinz, Franklin County Sheriff Dallas Baldwin said in a statement that he has asked his staff to immediately begin the process of terminating Heinz's employment. Heinz was hired by the sheriff's office in 2007 and is a deputy in the Franklin County Jail, but without peace officer training, meaning he cannot work patrol or perform other detective assignments. The FBI had searched Heinz's home and questioned him on February 10th, Baldwin placed Heinz on paid administrative leave on February 11th after learning of the search. Heinz had been working in the downtown jail facility at the time. According to court records, Heinz was communicating with someone in Illinois between August and December in which the pair discussed their mutual sexual interest in children. 
Court records indicate Heinz and the person in Illinois exchanged photographs of prepubescent and teenage girls over Kick, a messaging app. In one conversation, according to court records, Officer Heinz allegedly discussed sexually abusing a child he had access to, including photographing that child while they slept. Uh, good luck to that guy. Those are the type of people that, you know, if we still have burning at the stake, I'd be okay with it. But, it, uh, you know, it's one thing to be a kitty diddler. It's another to do it as a cop. And just those people are scum. They're fucking scum. Um, over in Oregon, we got two cases there. Yeah, just two for Oregon. So in Clark County, it really is kind of a third rule of fist situation. Again, no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. And in this case, there was a you know tail light traffic stop that ended in a person being killed. And that's it in a nutshell. From that story, it says, quote, Genoa Donald, the 30-year-old black man shot during a traffic stop with Clark County Sheriff's Office deputies, died around 2 a.m. Friday after a week on life support. Uh, OPB, which is uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, confirmed the news with Donald's family attorney, uh, the Herman Law Group. So, quote, for the family, it's still almost unimaginable how a traffic stop for a defective rear light was escalated by police to a fatal shooting, the attorney said. Uh, Donald is the second black man killed by Clark County Sheriff's Office deputies in just three months. On October 29th of 2020, less than a mile from Donald's stop, a law enforcement task force attempted a drug sting involving 21-year-old Kevin Peterson Jr. Peterson's death prompted a series of protests. The shooting of Donald occurred around 7.40 p.m. on February 4th after Deputy Sean Boyle stopped Donald for a broken taillight. Donald does not appear to have been armed during the encounter. A search warrant affidavit released Thursday reported no weapons recovered from the vehicle he drove. According to investigators, led by the Vancouver Police Department, Boyle stopped Donald near the intersection of Northeast 68th Street and Northeast 2nd Avenue. Donald provided identification during the traffic stop. Investigators said that while Boyle went back to his vehicle, another deputy noticed that what appeared to her to be weapons in the vehicle. She commanded Donald to show his hands. Investigators said Donald reportedly, subquote, did not comply, but instead produced a cell phone and a pair of metal pliers. And of course, the pliers is what led to them killing him. But here's the thing. Items recovered from the vehicle included a cell phone, a laptop, and a cordless drill. The search recovered no pliers. So that means the officer lied. They killed this guy and they lied about it, which you might notice a, a fucking theme there. So an unarmed, extrajudicial summary execution without due process for a fucking taillight. We need to end taillight policing. I included that as part of my campaign platform back in 2016. It needs to go. It serves no purpose for public safety. The reason why we say it's a public safety issue is just because it makes us feel better when shit like this happens. The reason we do it is because it's a chance for cops to go sniff in your vehicle for drugs or seeing if they can find something to arrest you for. If it was actually a public safety issue, and that's something that people actually care about is the safety of your car and your rear taillights, what they would do is they would set up a system where the police officer punches in your license plate number, DMV sends you a letter saying, hey, a cop has reported your taillights out, get it fixed within 30 days or we suspend your license, and then go from there. That's all you got to do. If you're actually concerned about fixing rear taillights, that's all you have to do. It would be safer for the motorist. It would be safer for the police officer. It would be cheaper for everybody. But we don't do that. Because we actually like it when police kill people on a roadside over fucking pliers that don't exist. Uh, in Portland, this is some wild shit. 
So the story says, quote, a widely anticipated U.S. Department of Justice report issued Wednesday found the city of Portland is once again not in compliance with a federal agreement on how the Portland Police Bureau uses force and conducts officer oversight. The 2014 settlement agreement was put in place after a federal investigation found Portland officers were using excessive force on people with mental health needs. Wednesday's updated report cites failures across a number of sections encompassing use of force, training, and officer accountability. The Portland Police Bureau has had a bruising year since February 2020 when Justice Department lawyers found the city in substantial compliance with the nearly 200 reforms required under the agreement. After a round of pandemic-induced budget cuts in the spring, the Bureau was consumed by a massive racial justice uprising focused almost exclusively on racist policing. Portland police spent much of the summer and early fall squaring off against hundreds and often thousands of demonstrators in nightly protests, where police would regularly use tear gas and impact munitions, resulting in thousands of use of force incidents. The city has to be in compliance for one full year to fulfill the requirements of the Justice Department agreement and bring the outside oversight to an end. Wednesday's report essentially reset that clock again. Echoing a common complaint from protesters and civil rights activists, the report found that Portland officers regularly used force against large crowds during the summer when only a select few potentially posed a threat. Subquote, PPP members used force some beyond policy, the Department of Justice found. Supervisors approved that force, some without required critical assessment. The report also called out the police bureau's over-reliance on the long-range acoustic device, or LRAD, to communicate with protesters. Further, it found that officers conflated active and passive aggression, failed to interview witnesses, and did not report or review use of force in a timely manner. At least one of the reasons it found PPB out of compliance was that after Mayor Ted Wheeler, who was also the police commissioner, restricted the use of tear gas in September, PPB did not respond to Justice Department requests for specifics on how that policy would be implemented until January 13th. DOJ also found at the mayor's September 9th press release directing the Portland police to end the use of CS gas for crowd control was the only guidance PPB received, and that later clarification that CS gas could still be used when there is a subquote threat to life or safety contradicted the original press release leading to confusion. Subquote, some supervisors validated uses of force with little or no critical assessment, even uses of force that were captured on video and replayed on new media or later became subject to complaints, the report reads. Validation of individual uses of force with little or no discussion of reasonableness of the force used or of de-escalation attempts stands in contrast to PPB's policy requirements for force investigations and PPB's expressed organizational goals. The failure to critically assess uses of force after they happen is another reason the city is partially out of compliance. Federal prosecutors overseeing the agreement expressed concerns with whether PPB is holding officers accountable for their misconduct. Subquote, the absence of supervisory investigations deprives the accountability system of data needed if allegations of misconduct arise, such as witness interviews, the report states. The lack of interviews presents a challenge to city investigators charged with determining if a policy violation occurred. And as those complaints have piled up this summer, the group charged with reviewing those cases, the Independent Police Review Board, is failing to meet the mandated timeline under the federal agreement. Finally, the Justice Department report says Portland police are failing to meet training and community engagement obligations. The Bureau is required to present its annual report to the City Council and in the three precincts. In previous years, that has happened mid-summer, but the Bureau didn't present its most recent 2019 report until December 2020. The Bureau did not present its report in all three precincts either, citing challenges with the pandemic and with protests. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> One, 
this report was primarily done by the Trump administration. Like that is that is you got to fuck up bad for a Bill Barr Department of Justice to say you're out of compliance. You know, it, it's it's astonishing to me. That's that's point one. Point two is a lot of this fuck ups happened as Portland police got more money from the city council. None of these defund the police moves that happened, not because of the protests, but because of pandemic funding cuts, none of that stuff had happened by this point. These guys are getting money hand over fist, and you're not complying with any of this shit. You're not even making an effort to do so. It's astonishing to me that you can have this level of endemic incompetence from floor to ceiling when you're under a consent decree. It's just, it's impressive. Uh, in Pennsylvania, this is the other story where I mentioned we had police uh, participating in the insurrection. Uh, in North Cornwall, the story says, quote, A Pennsylvania police officer has been charged for his role in the Capitol riots after allegedly posting a video of himself rushing a line of law enforcers. Joseph Fisher, a patrolman at North Cornwall Township Police Department, is facing several charges, including obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder for his role in the January 6th siege. The township released a statement Friday that Fisher was arrested by the FBI Friday and he has been suspended without pay. According to a criminal complaint, the day after the riots, Fisher posted a video on Facebook of himself charging towards a line of police officers while appearing to shout, motherfuckers. Prosecutors allege that Fisher also had a physical altercation with at least one officer before falling to the ground, although he did eventually make it inside the Capitol. Slight shade there. That's, that's kind of funny. Uh, Fisher admitted that he spoke with his police chief about attending the riot, saying he told his boss that losing his job might be the, quote, price I have to pay to voice my freedom and liberties, which I was born with and thusly taken away. I told him I have no regrets and give zero shits. Although he continued in his Facebook message, sometimes doing the right thing, no matter how small, is more important than one's own security. I love the flexible morals here. You know, got got to have law and order. Got to make sure I back the blue. Blue lives matter. Until I decide I'm going to go flagrantly violate the law I'm sworn to uphold because I don't like election results. So, uh, over in Texas, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, An investigation is underway after a video surfaced showing a Harris County deputy pulling a gun on a driver on the South Loop Monday afternoon. George Dickerson said he and his work partner merged onto the South Loop from US 59 around 1.40 p.m. Monday and got caught in a funeral procession. Now, I'm going to pause here. There's actually an extended part of this story that details the changing of lanes, like the actual traffic movement. I'm going to skip all that because it's several paragraphs of bizarre. I don't know why it's in the story. Uh, story continues, quote, Dickerson's co-worker riding in the passenger seat captioned what happened next on video. The video shows the deputy with a gun in his hand and the driver with his hands up. Basically, they got into this funeral procession and they had to stop. The, the bike officer in front of them stopped. So this guy in his car stopped, which caused the bike officer behind him to stop. And the one behind got out with his gun drawn. The deputy who has not been named can be heard saying, I'll fucking kill you as he approaches the car with his gun drawn. So, quote, I was terrified, Dickerson said. I had a gun to my face. He's threatening to kill me because I stopped my truck. I didn't want to hit the guy. I stopped my truck and he is threatening to kill me because he thought I did it intentionally, I guess. Dickerson said he was driving his work truck at the time and was not armed. Both he and his colleagues said they thought about the encounter into the night and Tuesday morning. So, quote, he's trained to handle himself as well as people on the street, Dickerson said. You would think his training would help him to not have that road rage. I'm going to pause. Would you think that? 
Because I would not think that. I, I realize there is some degree of, of naivety among the public, but that's not the sort of thing that I would think. Uh, continued, subquote, that's not something you do every day is threatening to kill somebody. If I threatened to kill somebody, I would go to jail. If I had a gu- held a gun to whomever and said, I'm going to kill you, that's a terroristic threat. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> you absolutely would go to jail. Uh, Dickerson said he has not heard from the sheriff's office since the incident. I know they are not all like that. There are just a few and everyone else is amazing. L O fucking L on that one. There are just a few. And yet every podcast episode, we've got roughly 20 stories and this has been going on for years on end. Uh, over in Washington, we have the third rule of Fisk. Again, no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. This is the other story I mentioned to you about people loving kitty porn who happen to work for the police. From that story, it says, quote, King County Prosecutors Friday charged a Washington State Patrol school bus safety inspector. That's one hell of a job. The school bus safety inspector uh, charged with, oh, I'm wrong. This is not child porn. This is attempted rape of a child. I apologize. I, I should have gotten that correct. Uh, charged a school bus safety inspector with two counts of attempted first-degree rape of a child following his arrest at a Kirkland hotel during an undercover Seattle police operation. Trevor Smith, who lives in Everett, was arrested Tuesday night and was released the following evening. Court records do not yet indicate which attorney is representing him. He is to be arraigned on March 10th. According to the charges, he answered an ad placed by an undercover officer as part of a sting operation by the Seattle Police Department's Internet Crimes Against Children Unit, targeting people involved in sexual exploitation of minors. He believed he was trading graphic messages with the mother of two girls, ages 6 and 11, and he offered the woman sexual access to his 9-month-old son. Smith, who was immediately removed from his duties, worked for the Washington State Patrol as a commercial vehicle enforcement officer assigned to the school bus inspection program. Uh, Yikes. Fucking yikes on that one. All right, so that is going to do it for this week's criminal justice fuckery. We do, he said, uh, tongue-tied, excuse me. We do have some stories in the queue for next week because if I can get a story... Jesus, I apologize, y'all. I'm having tongue-tied issues after going through this particular episode. Have stories in the queue for next week, because if I can, I would like to make sure we get a podcast out. It just depends on how my court stuff goes. Uh, But as always, I want to give a thank you to our show note sponsors, Anon, Trey Benfield, Ian Booth, Mary Jo Gustafson, Colleen Mahaney, Neil Richmond, Ari Rutenberg, and Michael Teal, as well as our Law 140 lovers, Lindsay Bowser, Erica Phillips, Helen Poston, and Joe Sevitz. The fancy music you hear is the track Drinks on Me by DJ Carolina's Finest. Thank you all for listening. Give us a a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you happen to use. If you don't mind, tell a friend about us. Share our Twitter account. And as always, on behalf of myself and myself, because I usually say Mike the Sound Guy here, but hope all of you have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next, uh, next Monday. Take care.